can't even dream about loving his wife so much that he'd lay down his life for her, that he would literally give up his being for her blossoming like Jesus did for the church. And no wife without the grace of God can actually submit to the egghead who put a ring on her finger. Right? And so everybody finds themselves before the Lord saying, God, how do we do this? And then the Lord imparts the grace that we do these things as unto him and our spouses get the benefit. Jesus' love for us, his church, is the perfect example of a husband loving his wife unconditionally. While we may attempt to imitate this love in marriage and relationships, we'll never be as good at it as Jesus is with us. However, Pastor Daniel reminds us in today's message to look to Jesus first when approaching our relationships. When we focus on him and his love for us, we'll be able to pass that love on to those around us. Now here's Pastor Daniel with part two of his message, The Vows of Women. So look at what it says in verse three. It says, or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears the, her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand in every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. So now we have a single woman who is in her youth. So so she's still under the covering or the authority of her father. Now, if she makes a vow, imagine a woman has this moment, a gal has this moment, and she says, God, I'm going to bind myself to something, right? If her father hears it and he holds his peace, then that vow stands. Then she's allowed to make the vow, and if her father consents to the vow, then that's the vow before the Lord, and she should keep that vow. But if the father decides for whatever reason that that vow is not okay. If the father resists the vow, then the Lord does not hold that woman to task for that vow. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was young, I'm grateful that I haven't been held to everything that I said I was going to do when I was young. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. So it's like the idea here is that, and there's nothing wrong with being young. The only problem with being young is, is that you're young. Right? And one of the things you learn as you get older, and now I realize that by no means am I the oldest person around, but one of the things that I, when I look back on myself in my teenage years and in my 20s, I didn't know what I didn't know. I think that's something that as you live longer and have more experiences, you start to learn that, wow, I really thought I really had all that stuff together. I didn't even realize this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, and with further reflection, this thing and this thing. How many of you guys have seen the commercial, or gals, you've seen that commercial where it's like, I'm never going to get married, and then the next scene is on the wedding day, and I'm never going to have kids, and then it's like, I'm pregnant, and then, you know, we're never going to have more kids, I'm never going to drive a minivan, I'm never going to live in the suburbs, right? And then the, the last scene, it's a beautiful commercial, it's a guy sitting there with his wife and his kids are all sleeping, he's like, I'm never letting go. 
And we've all kind of done that as you're one, in one stage of life. Like, I'm never going to do that thing, right? And so really what we have here is that for a daughter who's under the covering of her father, she can make a vow as long as her father consents to it. And the father holds his peace and says, great, she wants to do that religious vow, great. But if he doesn't like it for whatever reason, the Lord lets the woman off from the vow because God honors the authority of a father over his daughter. And Lord willing, within that authority structure, if you read your Bible about God's design for parents with their children and children with their parents, God's intention is not that the authority of a parent be oppressive, but that the authority of a parent be something that helps the child blossom. And anybody here who's a parent, you know what that's like. You're always running that, you're always looking for where the line is for when your parenting is something that oppresses your children, as opposed to what makes them blossom. So I've used this example many times because Obadiah is like me and so he's fun and so he does crazy things and I'm his dad so I got to watch him. And I remember I was at the park with Obadiah. So Obadiah must have been about four or five and Maranatha was about one or two, right? And I'm on the phone with Lynn. So Lynn's not there. I'm at the park and Obadiah is literally walking up the large slide with a big wheel, right? And Maranatha's right in front of him. So it's like, Maranatha's going on. And I know what's going on because Obadiah is me. And so I've been there before. And so he's going to put Maranatha on the big one. He's going to send her down the slide, right? That's what, I know that that's what's happening because he's my boy and I get him. You know what I mean? And so, so sure enough, I'm on the phone with Lynn and I know I'm going to have fun with this. So I'm like, I'm like, Obadiah, you can't send Maranatha down the big slide on the big wheel without a helmet on. And Lynn literally screams into the phone, you can't let him send her down the slide at all, you know? But I knew I wasn't going to let him do it. But it was more, I was, you know, I had to have a little fun with my bride. You know, she loves me for it. Not really. Pray for her. You know what I mean? But it's like, I love Obadiah. And I did not exert my parental prerogative because I'm a lame dad. I just know that if he sends his little sister down the big slide, on the big wheel, we're going to end up going to the hospital. And it'll be really super fun for like three seconds, not even, like 0.3 seconds. And then it's just going to go really bad. So listen, the Bible says, parents, don't provoke your children. Fathers, don't provoke your children. The idea is don't oppress them. You're not trying to hold them down. You just need to set the guardrails so that they can blossom and flourish the way God wants them. Our job is to prune them so that they could be the most fruitful, not to oppress them so that they can't blossom. And so the idea here is that a father's prerogative over his single daughter is not to oppress her spiritually, but to make sure she doesn't make a vow that is actually going to oppress her ultimately. So the father has the prerogative. And if a father overrules the vow of a daughter, then God lets the daughter off. Notice what it says. It says that the Lord... It's beautiful in verse 5. The Lord will release her. So the Lord will let her out of the vow because the father has overruled her. So that's for a daughter, a single woman. Now, in verse 6, look what it says. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips, which she has bound herself, and her husband hears it, verse 7, and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then the vow shall stand, and her agreement by which she is bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips, 
by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. So now we have a wife who either makes a vow and then gets married, or while she's married makes a vow. Now, what you find here is that when a woman leaves the covering of her father by being married, now her husband becomes her covering. And this is all through the New Testament. It's all through that the man of the house has spiritual authority over his bride. Now, when I say something like that, I realize that that is repulsive in our culture because it implies that women are less than men, which it doesn't imply at all. Actually, if you read Ephesians chapter 5, which maybe is the big text on this, is it begins with, we should submit to one another in the Lord, right? And that wives are meant to submit to their husband because men are meant to die for their wives, love their wives like Christ loved the church. Now, God's authority is not designed to denote worth. It's just a structure that keeps both husband and wife humble before God on their knees. You know what I've learned in my own marriage is that my wife Lynn is way more spiritual than I am. I love Jesus, but like Lynn is like a deeply sensitive to the Holy Spirit kind of a woman. And as a husband, when I talk with my wife and she shares her deep, humble wisdom of her relationship with God, I end up saying, Lord, how can I lead this woman? I can't do it, Lord. She should be leading me. And I find myself on my knees of my heart before the Lord saying, God, how do I do this? And then I can imagine, although Lynn hasn't said that this happens, but I'm sure that it does, that when Lynn sees me in my not-so-spiritual glory, she says, God, how on earth can I submit to this egghead? You know what I mean? And so she finds herself on her knees before the Lord saying, God, how in the world can I submit to this guy? And isn't that exactly where God wants people? On their knees before the Lord saying, God, how do we do this? And you know what comes out? The Lord says to me, Daniel, you need to die for her. And I go, oh, Lord, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, like, right? Because who wants to be told they need to die themselves? I mean, that's never fun. Anybody ever just be like, yeah, I'm going to die to myself. This is great. No, every time you got to die to yourself, you want to poke someone's eye out slowly. But you find yourself before the Lord being like, Lord, how do I do this? And the Lord starts to teach. And really, the way I believe God designed authority of husbands with their wives in marriage is actually literally meant, it's a matrix of mutual humility to drive all of us to humble ourselves before the Lord. Because without the Lord, none of us can do this. A husband can't even dream about loving his wife so much that he'd lay down his life for her, that he would literally give up his being for her blossoming like Jesus did for the church. And no wife without the grace of God can actually submit to the egghead who put a ring on her finger, right? And so everybody finds themselves before the Lord saying, God, how do we do this? And then the Lord imparts the grace that we do these things as unto him and our spouses get the benefit. So if you struggle with the idea of God-defined roles, you always have to remember this. The marriage between a man and a woman is always designed to be a picture of Jesus and his church. So it's not about it outside of the work of Jesus and his covenant people whom he died for so that he can redeem, who he placed the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit on. 
those who he's going to come back and receive to himself. You can't divorce these things from the finished work of Jesus, the good news of the gospel. And our understanding of it can't be filtered through the garbage we see culturally of guys who want to sit on a lazy boy and demand their dinner perfect and just, I'm not going to do anything and you do everything and you submit, woman. That's not the heart of God. But we see these we see these roles in the light through the lenses of the Holy Spirit, the cruciform shape, and it takes on a whole different picture. What you actually find is it's deeply beautiful and terrifying. Terrifying because God invites us on a journey to be unlike anything we've ever been before. God invites a husband to go down deep into the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He invites his daughters, on a journey to understand how do we respond to you, Jesus, and can I respond the same way to this guy who's learning how to respond like Jesus responds. So for here, for a woman who's married now, the husband takes that place of authority. Now notice, if a woman makes a vow and the husband, Lord willing, the leadership, spiritual leadership of a husband in marriage is not oppressive, but it's meant to be blossoming. It's meant to be nurturing so that a woman will blossom in all the different ways. If you read Ephesians 5, isn't that what it's all about? That he might present her without spot or wrinkle, a radiant bride. That's what it literally says. The word in, in the Greek is radiant. It's translated glorious. A husband's job is to make his wife radiant because he's acting in such a way that the radiant love of God is being channeled through his life to his bride, and she's responding to that in glowing radiance. So that's a different picture than like a husband putting his wife under his thumb and saying, well, you stay barefoot pregnant in the kitchen, and I like my burritos spicy. It's a completely different reality, but what we do is we hear these gender roles or these marriage roles, and we divorce it from the whole story of God's redemptive plan, and we realize that we are filtering these ideas through something that doesn't make any sense, but then you look at the cross and the finished work and how it all fits together, and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. And isn't that what a woman really wants from her husband, that he would love her so much he'd give up his own life for her? Isn't that the love that a person wants? And really all a man wants in marriage is he wants to be respected. And one of the ways a wife can respect her husband is say, look, I trust you, and I'm learning how to trust you. That's what both people really want. And that's why at the end of Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives, and wives, see that you want your husbands. Respect your husbands. Powerful. The husband takes the place of the father as the authority over this woman. Now, look what it says in verse 9, here in Numbers chapter 30. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Now, this is a woman who is single again, whether she was single again because her husband had passed on or her marriage ended in divorce. For her, her vow stands. So whatever vow you make, because a woman who is single again, she's already left the covering of her father, and she is no longer under the covering of her husband. Now, whatever vow you make, guess what? That's your vow. That one will stand. Because at that juncture, the woman does not have the covering either of her father or her husband. And so now, because of that, she's on her own. And whatever vow she makes, that vow is meant to stand. Okay, look what it says in verse 10. If 
she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband, verse 12, truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all her agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. Now, this speaks of a vows made by a woman who's married long term. You see what's going on here. You have these things that were, they happen and they're temporary. Now we have these ideas of kind of long term vows. And really what you have here is it shows kind of the complications of a marital relationship. Everybody brings in their stuff into a marriage, right? And you could imagine in a culture that was pretty steeped in vows and making vows, how imagine if a woman made a vow, hey, um, I'm going to abstain from having relations with my husband for the next five years. He might want to say something about that, right? Or I vow that I'm never going to cook again because I don't like to. You know what I mean? It could be, or I vow to give all of our money away. You know, and what's amazing is, is if you look at relationships today, when people make drastic decisions about their lives and they're married, it has an impact on the spouse, doesn't it? And so, really, it shows some of the complications of what goes on in marriage and how things function. So here we have, if there's this long-term vow made. Look, if she vowed in her husband's house, verse 10, or bound herself by any agreement or an oath, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. So if a woman makes a vow, when her husband hears it, if he doesn't say anything about it, then that vow is going to hold, Right? Now, verse 12, but if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning an agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband made them void and the Lord will release her. So when something comes out, if a husband says, no, we're not going to do that, then the Lord doesn't hold the woman to this vow, right? Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, notice, now we have this phrase, the afflicting of the soul. So this is some sort of an act of fasting. You're literally pushing something natural away. Again, when a woman says, hey, I'm going to fast for the next 10 days as unto the Lord, or I'm going to abstain from this thing, or whatever it is, the husband has the right to refuse and overrule the vow. Because as the authority of the home... He has a say in this. What's done here with this chapter. It says, now if her husband makes no response, verse 14, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear 
her guilt. Now, what this says is that if the husband doesn't do anything and then decides to later, he actually makes his wife guilty of not fulfilling her vow. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because now what you have is that a husband has the ability to make decisions that puts his wife at a disadvantage, which really shows that God loves the wives just as much as she loves the husbands, and he wants all the authority structures to be structures of flourishing, not of oppression. So really you see the responsibility of a husband here as the head of his home in making good decisions in regards to his bride. Because if he lets her do this vow for a while and then he forbids her, he actually puts her at a situation of disadvantage in her relationship with the Lord. So really what this teaches us is that we, in the authority that we have, and all of us have authority in some ways, right? If you're a single person who is living outside of your parents' home, then you have authority for the decisions that you make. If you're a single person living within your home, you're under the authority of your parents, but you have authority over a lot of things, whether it's school or work. We all have people who we have influence over. Maybe you have a job. Whatever it is, we need to take care of the responsibility. I think part of the biggest issues we have in our culture today is that people have responsibility and authority, and we actually don't want it. We actually don't want to be the person to have to make the hard decisions. I have that with Crossroads all the time. I have all these times where I have to make a decision that I don't want to make, but I have to make a decision. And every time I get there, the Lord always reminds me, Daniel, if you can't make the right decision, even if you're not going to like making it, then you can't lead here. You have to make the decision. And I wonder for us, how many of us are pretending like we don't have responsibility in situations because we don't want to have to make a hard decision. We don't have to make a decision that might be an unpopular decision. We all are under the authority of the Lord. And we all find ourselves under other people's authority and being placed in places of authority. And no matter what place we find ourselves, each one of us has a responsibility to the Lord to steward, to be a caretaker of both the authority that we place ourselves under and the authority that we possess to do that as unto the Lord. Now listen, what that means is that you choose to work where you work right? You're choosing to place yourself under that authority. If you're single, listen, you're going to choose who you're going to marry. That's a choice that you make. You need to make good choices in these things. If you're married, guess what? You're married. You made that choice. Now you need to steward the authority structure that you have. If you're a husband, you need to die for that girl as unto the Lord. You need to die to yourself. If you're a sister, you need to submit to the Lord and to that guy as long as he's not leading you in a way that is oppressive and nasty. See, all of us have that responsibility. And I think for all of us, we struggle to actually grab hold of that authority and say, God, I want to steward my life in authority structures as unto you. I want to honor you in the way that I carry authority. And I want to honor you in the way that I submit to the authority that is over me. Jesus is... Pastor Daniel reminded us in today's message that we all have responsibility and influence in some area of our lives. It could be at work, at home, or anywhere. 
Though it might seem insignificant, God has given us the ability to change lives by our example. Hey everyone, this is Pastor Daniel. Have you ever asked yourself, what is this life really all about? How shall I live? See, these are life's most important questions. Jesus invites us to follow him on a journey of discovering the art of living. And he gives us the answers to these questions. I'm stoked to share with you my newly released book where you can learn how to live an abundant life by living upward, inward, and outward through loving God and loving yourself and loving others. I will unpack the keys to a life that overflows with blessing. So here's Josh with some more information. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. This is exciting news. Pastor Daniel's new book, Upward, Inward, and Outward, is not currently available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else. Pastor Daniel would like to offer a special pre-released signed copy of his book, Upward, Inward, and Outward, to anyone who supports Jesus is Real Radio with a gift of $25 or more. Simply visit JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on Partner from the main menu. There you can give your gift. And again, as a thank you, we will send you a special pre-released signed copy of Pastor Daniel's upcoming book, Upward, Inward, and Outward. Join us again here on Jesus is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel touches on a difficult topic, vengeance. While war was a part of the Old Testament, it occasionally comes under fire in discussions when not viewed through the lens of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series entitled Preparation. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio.